from City Bridges, this is Randy Bartlett, and this is We Make the Road by Walking, the podcast where I talk with people from all walks of life about the paths they have traveled and what they have learned along the way. Welcome to this week's episode of We Make the Road by Walking. I hope you've enjoyed our season thus far. If you do, please give us five stars, a positive review, share it with your friends and neighbors. It really does make a huge difference. And if you have a story that you want to tell, please reach out and let us know. This week we are talking with uh, a local individual who wears a number of different hats, which I think is one of the key themes that you see in We Make the Road by Walking. Not everyone just does one thing, and in fact, people will change the things that they do uh, along their road. So I'm really excited for you to hear his story. Enjoy. I'll start out with... The question I start out with everyone is, can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about how you describe what it is that you do now? Sure. Okay. Uh, well, thanks for having me on here. It's always great chatting with you, Randy. Uh, and it's always good to just have a chance to talk about myself, you know. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, how do I uh, describe myself now? Um, I would say um, I'm sort of a combination of an educator and someone who's just trying to live their life the right way. And that's really hard. The latter one in particular is pretty tough. But everything I do, um, I do with an eye to making sure that that latter one is is nice and on point. How I achieve that is mostly through uh, education. And what sort of education do you do? In particular, I have a uh, love of all things science. My My focus is in particular the sort of like deepest questions of science, maybe not necessarily the deepest in the sense of the most philosophical, but at the really like core underlying aspects of reality. So I would probably be best labeled as a theoretical physicist. All things physics uh, are really kind of my forte. How did you land on physics? What was your story? You know, the I don't know. It sounds like there's a joke there where it can be like, you know, a theoretical physicist walks into a bar. Right. Um, <laughs> And so how does one how does one decide to become a theoretical physicist? What's that path? Right. Yeah, this is um, this is a great question because it's a pretty, I don't know, like not so amazing story. Uh, and I think that's kind of the amazing thing about it is that like there's kind of a lot of stereotypes out there about like string theorists and stuff like that and whenever i like tell someone casually in the bar that i'm a string theorist and they find out my last name's cooper and then it starts eliciting all sorts of references to big bang theory and things like that but yeah i mean like i was basically just kind of like a normal kid who grew up in like a normal like suburban western pennsylvania town i grew up in bethel park pennsylvania um very normie if you will um and uh i um I wouldn't say as a young person, I was super academically inspired, to be honest. Um, I definitely was always like very curious and was really into building things. I uh, was really into watching like the Discovery Channel and stuff like that. Over the process of about six years, me and my friends built a two-story house out of trash using no like nails or screws or anything. It was all just held together by gravity, um, but it was like carpeted and waterproof and it was all built out of stuff we found in like dumpsters behind elementary schools and on trash night and stuff like that. My parents hated it, obviously, but they liked that I was doing something that seemed somewhat productive. So I always had a sort of like builder mentality. I was mostly just interested in video games as a kid, to be honest, but I was always kind of good at math. And then a few sort of like moments, I think were like 
key turning points in my life that led to kind of where I am today in that sense. <clears throat> One is in seventh grade, I really just slacked off like the whole like puberty hormone thing just like turned me into a monster of a person. Um, and I really was not very good at school, especially in seventh grade. Somehow my math teacher, he like saw something in me. I'm not really sure how, or like from what interactions he got this, but the grade I got in the class, I was supposed to stay in this sort of like medium level math class. But he, at the end of the year, he kind of like took me into a room separately. And he's like, I'm going to put you on the advanced math track. And I was like, Oh, I don't, I didn't get enough kind of grades to do that. And he's like, I know, but like, I'm going to force them to change it and you're going to do it. And it's going to be the right thing for you. And I was just like, okay, well, sorry, Mr. Lahotsky. Like I just listened to whatever he said. That's when I like kind of skipped ahead to be on the advanced math track in eighth grade. And then that really just sort of like set the stage. Like I really enjoyed that class and I really enjoyed sort of being like challenged and um, with geometry. That was the class there was. And that got me sort of into math. And then in physics, I would say 11th grade, I took a physics class. And one thing that was a really sort of powerful experience for me there was my teacher got really sick unfortunately she had all kinds of allergies and things and she asked me to teach her class for her and I was taking the class but she was like yeah you're pretty good at this stuff like will you just like the substitute teacher is not going to be able to teach it will you just do it so I called her in the hospital every night and she would like give me the explanation of what we were doing as a lesson plan. Um, and I actually like taught the class for like a couple of weeks while she was out. And that kind of gave me the self-confidence to be like, hey, maybe this is like my thing. Then in 12th grade, I had this teacher named Mr. Wargo, um, who really was just like, I don't know, he just kind of got what was so amazing about physics, about the fact that like, this is not just like the way that you build iPhones or something like that, that this is really like a new lens that you have to look at the world through. And it's like an incredibly powerful lens in which like everything you see starts to just fall into these patterns, which are like very harmonious and interesting. And like, once you have this physics lens, it's like impossible to even ever be bored or anything because like, you know, there's such an interesting, complicated story behind like every place you are and everything you see. And so he really like sold that to the point that I was like, yeah, this is something that I could like totally see myself doing. And so that got me like into physics. I didn't actually go to school to be a physicist at, at first. Um, mm. Again, I was kind of more video game player. And so I just like I, my parents were like, you have to go go to college and i was like all right i'll go to college uh, i got good grades and stuff so that wasn't like you know it wasn't like it, it was i had to like prepare super hard for it but i still had to write applications so i just applied to Pitt and penn state um you know the two schools i didn't as uh, interestingly and i'm really mad at my guidance counselor for this i didn't really know that you could kind of apply wherever you want i was mm. kind of like under the impression that like everyone from here applies to these schools. Everyone from there applies to those schools. And I distinctly remember another student being like, I'm going to go to school in the Netherlands. And I didn't know what the Netherlands were. I remember like looking up and being like, how do you, how do you even like decide to do that? Like, you can't do that. Like that's not like a thing. So anyways, I just did the most uninspiring thing and applied to these schools. Um, and I got into them. I really was kind of like, I don't know, my brother went to Penn State for engineering, maybe I'll go to Penn State for engineering. But some of my friends were staying in Pittsburgh. And so I was like, okay, I'll just like stay in Pittsburgh and do engineering. Uh, and so I ended up going to the, the University of Pittsburgh for engineering. That experience was 
pretty good. Again, I wasn't like kind of super into it, but I was getting decent grades. And it really wasn't until my sophomore year that I just started wanting more. That like the more I learned, the more I realized that these questions are so much deeper than what I thought. And that like, I'm not close to the edge at all. That there are just like massive rabbit holes to go down. Um, And that if I really want to like get to the edge of some of these things and some of these ideas, like I'm going to have to really like kick it up into overdrive. So I left the engineering program and transferred to do a double major in math and physics. Uh, and that's whenever I kind of got more serious about that. Um, one of the main moments was I remember asking questions in an engineering class and the professor literally was like, I'm not even going to go into that. Like, you need to stop asking these questions. This doesn't matter. Like, yes, technically, like that is an interesting situation, but like, that's never a situation you're going to come up with. And like, of course, I was probably being like a, in hindsight, I probably would have said the same thing if I was really annoyed with him. But that had a moment on me where I was like, oh, okay. These people are here to train engineers, to build bridges, to like make steel. Like these people aren't here to kind of like do this thing that my high school teacher was doing, which was to sort of, you know, provide a framework for you. Um, And so that's whenever I went into the more sort of like abstract stuff. As someone who has experience with both building and making and doing and a lot of thinking theoretically, do you separate those two parts of your mind? Do you approach building problems and theoretical problems in a different way or is, mm-hmm. or are they more sort of integrated in the way that you approach those? Yeah. Great question. Um, and it is quite paradoxical. Like nowadays I'm like, damn, I wish I would have stayed in engineering and then I would have known how to like do this air conditioner. But yeah, what's interesting is that at first those were very separate mm-hmm. and it took me a long time conceptually to be able to actually bridge those things. And once you're able to bridge those things, then that's actually like a really powerful ability. And I learned that ability actually from hanging out with experimental physicists in graduate school. Because people that are experimental physicists, their job is like to basically make these connections, to be like, you have all these ideas, but you need to turn them into like an actual physical thing that's happening in the world. And so you need to apply whatever sort of reason you have, whatever models, mental models you have, mathematics you have, uh, into like a very concrete thing with very concrete questions. That was like a skill that you were supposed to get from labs in school, but in no way do you get that from labs. And we all in the business now, I work at a university now, we all know that like labs aren't doing that at all. And we really need to rethink them, but it's just a really hard question. How you teach people to merge that more theoretical thought with a very hands-on practical thought. Um, But once you can do it, it's very, it basically unlocks your ability to do anything provided you can kind of think about it long enough. Like I can, whenever I'm doing work that typically construction work or something that you typically leave to a contractor like yes i definitely don't have the sort of like nuanced experience to do a lot of these things but i can very quickly sort of think through it because like i understand pressure and electricity and material science and things like that so i actually like can can think through a lot of those things and not some people don't connect those things at all like another one of the theoretical physicists at um the university that i teach at um she's great she's a brilliant woman but she doesn't seem to like apply this 
kind of thinking to her sort of like practical everyday. And she will, she'll be the first to admit this as well. And she's like, that's why I'm a theorist. Um, so yeah, in theoretical physics, they don't really ask you to do that a lot of times, but the people who actually spend the time to connect those things that like really opens up a world of possibilities. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it was one of the things that was so impressive about your work with the high school students at city bridges. Um, I mean, one, they just loved your whole style and your guacamole recipe. I should have brought that day one. That would have, really got, <laughs> that would have got the buy-in so much better. They're always like, oh, can Coop come to this? Can Coop come to that? I'm like, sure, Coop can come to whatever. Um, but the the way that you integrated the some of the physics theory and then the practical application in the sort of municipal infrastructure and, uh, you know, yeah. of the building itself. Because I think especially at the high school level, one of the questions that you get all the time is like, what am I going to do with this? And to be able to say, not only here's what you're going to do with this, but here, here's a very sort of concrete manifestation of what you're going to do with it. It's a really powerful learning experience for, I mean, for all people, but certainly for high school age people. Yeah, yeah. I think educators fall victim a lot of times. If you already have the, the like castles built in front of you, then like it can be very satisfying to like, think about big picture questions about like the structure to act, to be thinking really like philosophically about like how it's built and why and everything like that. But we don't really appreciate a lot of times if that structure is not built in front of you, then these questions don't hang onto anything and don't have any meaning. And I'm guilty of this in my lectures all the time. I'll find myself slipping into like waxing philosophically about like a nuanced point in physics. And I need to just draw back and be like, Yes, Coop, that's interesting to you because this, the whole picture is already in front of you and you could start talking about like these overall shapes and patterns. But like if you haven't made the picture yet, then that theory is just, it literally sounds different to ears that don't have that picture than it does to ears that do have that picture. And so you know, we like to think that we can just talk about theory without practice, but honestly, the practice is what makes the theory have meaning. And so... Yeah, I think that that's something that I've been trying to learn how to do with younger people is to be like, yes, maybe my like senior physics majors at the Duquesne University, they already have a pretty awesome picture. And so they come to me for the good stuff. They come to me for this, you know, philosophical thinking about like the nature of reality. But like, if you're not in that place yet, then I can't like assume that if I just like spout this thing about interpretations of quantum mechanics, that that's going to at all be able to attach to anything in your life or make you inspired or interested or anything like that. I didn't know a lot of this stuff until somewhat recently. It's things that maybe like back in the day, people would have like, just like obviously known uh, just from existing, but because the world is so abstract nowadays and we're living like half of our lives in these digital spaces. And, you know, especially in this pandemic situation, there's days I'm spending seven, eight hours a day on zoom and zoom meetings and zoom recordings yeah, totally. Like just like stopping and looking around and like kind of asking questions about like why something is the way it is can be like refreshing even and like make you more connected to the world around you in profound ways. So. Let's let's continue with your journey then. So you you were at Pitt? I did two years at Pitt and then I left and I studied for a year in Europe and then I did two more years at Pitt. Um, and it was that year in Europe where um, I went to Oxford University. That was really huge for me, one, it's like, you know, getting out of Pittsburgh and traveling the world, blah, blah, blah. But like mostly the sort of pedagogical style, the teaching at Oxford is so different than here. 
that teaching style is sort of like what prepared me for doing what I needed to do back here to get to where I am. Um, and that teaching style is very much just like passing you the torch and being like, this isn't going to be about you coming in here and me saying these things. And then you saying these things back to me. And if you say I'm all right, then I'll say that you did it right. It was like, okay, here are some classes. The university will offer lectures. You can go to them if you want. You don't have to. They don't even know who you are or anything. But your tutor back here at the college, he's going to assign you a bunch of work, and you're going to have to figure it out. Will the lectures help you? Yeah, probably, but they might not. Uh, the library is right there. Here's a list of 10 books that will be available in the library. Feel free to read one of them, none of them, all of them, some of them. Find one of the ones that makes the most sense to you personally and use that in your journey. And it was very much a sort of like, here's like this trail in front of you and like, here's a walking stick and a little like sack, like get on it and like, and like explore. And, you know, because I was going into like a new country and everything, like I was kind of mentally ready to just like take that up. When I came back from England, it was just like so easy. My grandmother gave me a folder that had my transcripts in it the other day. For some reason, she was like putting our, her grandkids' diplomas up. And so I gave her my diploma because I didn't want it. Um, and my diploma also came with transcripts. And she gave it back to me being like, I found this in the attic. Did you want this? And I was like, yeah, sure, Grandma. Like, I think she forgot that she said she wanted it originally. But anyways, after I got back from England, I think in the next 16 courses I had, 12 of them were A pluses and, and four of them were A's. And in like math and physics classes, which at the college level can be kind of hard, but it wasn't like anything happened where I got like smarter or anything. It was just that like, I learned how to learn that that year was the year where they taught me how to learn. And it's literally like going super saiyan. Like once you like learn how to learn, you're just like freaking unstoppable. So yeah, I would say that like in college, Pitt was very influential, of course, and the people I met I'm living with today. But like that year in England is really cognitively where I just sort of like, I realized what this like thing was that scholars and scientists and people have been doing for, you know, thousands of years. And it was like, Oh yeah, this is like the path. And so I kind of knew what to do from there. And graduate school um, was just so much more natural. Graduate school was just sort of like a continuation of England more than it was a continuation um, of Pittsburgh. To graduate school outside of Pittsburgh or. Yeah. 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 So again, just like undergrad, uh, graduate school, uh, I basically, I was dating somebody at the time. Um, and I was just kind of like, okay, well let's like find cities we want to live in and then just like pick the same kind of area. And so my dream was that I would go to Columbia, uh, and she got into Yukon. And so that was like kind of close in Connecticut. And I got into Columbia and NYU for graduate school. I went to New York to visit Columbia just to like meet all the professors and stuff. But NYU actually had their open house in the same weekend. So I was like, okay, well, I'm here. I'll look at NYU as well. And it was totally crazy because I was like ready to like buy Columbia swag and everything. I was like so into this idea of like going to this like crazy Ivy Stone old school. The thing at Columbia was like the open house was just like a bunch of old professors with slideshows about all of the Nobel prizes that they won in the 1950s and like how amazing the history is there and all that. And like, 
besides that, all the other doors were closed. None of the graduate students were talking to each other, seemed happy. And then the next day I went to NYU's open house and it was like a freaking party. Like the students were all super stoked to meet new people and were like taking us out and doing things. The professors were taking us into empty rooms and being like, this is where you're going to do stuff. Like, this is where you're going to like make NYU famous. Like, this isn't about what we did in the past. Like, we're all a bunch of like new hires. NYU just started dumping a whole bunch of money in their physics department. And like, you're going to be a part of like growing this like totally new interdisciplinary type of program. And it was just so much more exciting. And everybody, the faculty seemed happier. The students seemed happier. It was right in the middle of Greenwich Village. And it was just like, yeah, this is the place. So I ended up going to NYU instead. And that was a that was a good decision. I don't know. <laughs> I got lucky that weekend that I kind of was able to push my identity aside so quickly to like make the right call there. Um, so yeah, I lived in uh, New York City for six years um, for graduate school. So how then did you end up back in Pittsburgh? Um, so yeah, so if I went the traditional theoretical physicist path, there is a 0% chance that I would be here right now. I would have probably done my first postdoc in Israel. There was some opportunities to actually go there um, after graduate school and then probably would have ended up in Central Europe. Most of the people doing the stuff I do are actually in like Belgium or the Netherlands in Northeastern Italy. There's a theoretical physics institute that has a lot of stuff that I do. Uh, So I probably would have been in Europe for about six years. I probably would have done like three two-year postdocs and then I would have been on the job hunt and then I probably would have been throw a dart at the continental United States and it would have hit somewhere in some campus in some Midwest state or something. And that's where, that's where I would have been. And it's like really mostly don't get to pick that sort of thing. I mean, my, my wife's family are academics and they were the same kind of thing. I mean, like my, my wife's father is like a brilliant mathematician, like went to MIT graduate school and everything. And he ended up at like the university of Nebraska. He would have never like chose to go there, but that's where the job was. And, you know, he loved it and he loves it. He still works there. Um, But, uh, but yeah, so how did I end up in Pittsburgh? Well, I had to kind of take a different path. So at the end of graduate school, I realized, yes, theoretical physics is super interesting, but to do this seriously as like a full-time job, like, like really publishing cutting edge research and stuff this has to be your life and it's not like your life like this has to be your job like nine to five like it doesn't really work like that because it's it's a cognitive workload that just isn't something that you just turn on at nine and turn off at five or whatever so this has to be my entire being like even the way I socialize, the way I interact with my kids and my family and my country, like everything just, you basically have to be a monk. It's almost like a modern day monk and you can live in like a city or whatever, but like your brain is never too far away from this sort of like weird meditative practice. I mean, the last two years of graduate school, most of it, I was literally just sitting on a couch and staring at a chalkboard, just me and an 85 year old man just staring at a chalkboard, like going up once every like 20 minutes. Like, so it's very weird and like almost religious. And I just like was living in Brooklyn and having most of my friends and stuff like aren't in this kind of world. I just like, there was reality was also too important to me. Like the struggle for what's going on in this country, the struggles people are like, you know, fighting against every day that I don't have to just because of some random coincidence about like where I was born and who I am and everything, all that stuff. I just realized like, I actually have a capacity to be able to do something about that stuff. Whereas like my colleagues who are a lot better than me at theoretical physics would be terrible at trying to like do that kind of stuff. And so I was like, you know what, let's let those people 
be the theoretical physicists, uh, be the ones that are doing all these postdocs and like fighting for these research jobs. Um, and I will just make sure that like my living life the way that I think I, I should be living it is, is right. And at the time it was like, my wife's family had like moved to Pittsburgh because they're originally the Tambellini family from the restaurants and all that back in Pittsburgh. I was like, look, both of our families are there. If we ever have kids, that'd probably be really awesome to have four sets of grandparents because uh, my family's remarried and, and then they have, I have step parents. And so there's just a million parents. I was like, this makes sense. Pittsburgh is this sort of like, small big town kind of thing where like it has all the amenities of a major urban metropolitan center but it also is sort of tractable you can like do things here without just getting like swamped and the like hordes of of money and people so it just felt like it just felt like the right place so yeah i mean and also like politically it's like pennsylvania is a swing state this is like a sort of like midwest rust belt town like i feel like this is the place where work really needs to be done in order to like make it a better place and have that reverberate to make everything a better place. Right. So it just made sense family wise. It made sense sort of like politically why we should be here. So that was like our goal. It was like, go to Pittsburgh. And so my wife had just fit. She kind of ironically, the girl that I went to New York for to try to go to Columbia for, we broke up. I met this other woman who moved to New York for me and then went to Columbia for graduate school. And so she had finished her graduate degree at Columbia and she just got a job and she's a speech therapist and you have to do something that's like postdocs. It's like get your clinical fellowship. And she just like got one in Pittsburgh and just called me and was like, Hey, I got this thing in Pittsburgh. I start in the fall. And I was like, okay, I need to figure out how to like do this. <laughs> Cause like you said, you can't really pick. I got super lucky. I messaged all my old math professors and physics professors. And at this point, my wife's mother had been working at Duquesne. She moved to Pittsburgh to work at Duquesne. And so I just messaged everybody and was like, I am very good at math and science. Can I work for anybody? The physics department at Duquesne said, well, we're not hiring, but we have, we need an adjunct to teach astronomy. Do you, do you know anything about astronomy? And I was like, no, I, but I can know something about astronomy by the fall. And they're like, okay, cool. So I took that job and then Pitt, messaged me back and was like, we actually need like a full-time lecture uh, in the mathematics department here starting in the fall. Can you do that? And I was like, sure. Can I teach astronomy too over there? They're like, I guess that's fine. And so, yeah, I just went there. I went back to Pittsburgh uh, and I was in the, in the math department, professor in the math department for a year. Um, and I was an adjunct uh, at Duquesne for a year. Um, and about halfway through that year, Duquesne was like, we're actually next year going to open up a real faculty job, um, like full-time forever faculty job. And so that motivated me to like really do well with this astronomy class and really become like a part of the department, like faculty meetings and stuff like that. Um, just so that way, when it came time to like doing the job search and picking people, they would see, ah, Coop, well, you know what you're going to get with Coop. You know, he might not be the best candidate, but at least, you know, he's, <laughs> you know, that he's fine. Um, so anyways, uh, once I got that job at Duquesne, uh, Pitt offered to me to stay on in the math department, but I, my heart's in physics. And so I ended up leaving, uh, university of Pittsburgh to teach physics uh, at Duquesne. Um, and so I really just kind of got lucky to land a full-time faculty job in a city that I just chose kind of like in a month, it helped that like I was able to teach in another completely different department in order to kind of buy time while something opened up. 
but like I doubt a physics faculty job is going to open up a Duquesne for like 15 years. So it was really just luck. (laughs) I would say more than anything. It's luck, but I also think that there's a really good professional skill that's illustrated in there as I listen to your story, because it's also about maintaining good relationships with people that you study with or that you work with so that you can reach out to those folks later in life. Yeah, no, that's a hundred percent true. The world is completely nepotism and you know, for better, for worse. And I could even say now I'm a business owner and I'm hiring and it's still completely nepotism. It's like, please make my life easier. Like tell me somebody that you know is good and I know you and I know I can trust you. And so it's just like, everything is so much easier if you have personal relationships with people. And so it just goes, it goes such a long way um, that all of that legwork I put in as an undergraduate, getting to personally know all my professors and going to office hours and like figuring out what they do with their research. And like a lot of my math professors were interested in physics. And so I would have these exchanges where like I would teach some of my math professors, the physics that I was learning and they would teach me some extra math stuff on the side. And like at the time I could have been out like, I don't know, drinking or something instead of doing that. Um, But it really paid off because then whenever it was like, Oh, that Cooper kid is moving back to Pittsburgh. Like, hell yeah. Like let's, let's hire him. Like, no, we don't have to do this job search. Like it's great. That's super true. That like, people capital is is one of the best investments that you could possibly do career-wise. Your mention of being a business owner is actually a great segue because I didn't meet you through physics at Duquesne. I actually uh, first met you through one of the other sort of major endeavors that you're involved in here at Pittsburgh with the Community Forge. And I'd love to hear the story of how that came about and that part of your life. So, yeah. So basically my, you know, this, this big sophomore year of college sort of thing uh, is when I moved in with this guy, Michael Skirpin. And, uh, and Michael Skirpin and I um, have just been pretty much straight scheming since 2006, I would say. And uh, for the last like 14 or so years, we've constantly just been like bouncing ideas off of each other. Some of them are good. Many of them are not. But one thing that has always been the case is that if we kind of thought we had a good idea, then we would just run with it and we wouldn't really like leave it in the idea phase for too long. And that's like another piece of advice I'd really recommend is like ideas aren't worth anything if they don't turn into anything. And so like it's cool that you have really cool ideas um, and like that might buy you social capital and conversations and stuff like that. Um, But like it's not really going to help anyone else until you can turn it into something. And so Mike, Mike was really the sort of, he's a principal person in my life that turns things into things. And so someone who thinks very abstract and theoretically like me paired with someone who thinks very much just boldly charging ahead, doing things. uh, It was a really nice sort of symbiotic relationship. And so him and I, we, he went to England as well. So both of us studied Oxford together. And then when we came back, we started like a, a, a club at, University of Pittsburgh, and we stayed in touch. Then while I lived in New York, I kept coming back and forth. And actually, it was while visiting Mike in Pittsburgh that I met my current wife, who was a student at the University of Pittsburgh at the time. And we just always like came up with little random projects. And so one of the projects was about 2010, 2011, we found just this patch of land in rural Tennessee, uh, about 16 acres of land, uh, and went in on it with my roommate from New York and Mike and his new girlfriend, Jackie, uh, and an old pit engineering friend. uh, And we just bought this land uh, in Tennessee and uh, built a barn on there and put solar panels on there and bought welding equipment to try and teach ourselves how to do that. Um, Experimented with making like composting toilets and cob ovens and like 
shower structures and laying concrete block and just kind of like trying to learn all the stuff that as a graduate student in New York City, you don't really have the space to do. And it turns out that our neighbors are these really super fascinating people who are also general contractors. And so, so they helped us like learn a lot of this stuff and also just helped us learn about like rural mentality. I mean, they live on a farm. We really learned a lot from each other. It was just kind of like, oh, this is sort of like the way you live your life. And in a way, like your children are like so much more like responsible people than anybody I know that age that lives in an urban setting because they have to like get up every morning and take care of animals and things like that. Like, it's just like, it's very interesting. And so like, that was a super big cultural eye-opening experience and also a fun kind of building thing. And we had conferences down there um, where we had all of our friends from all over the country who like scattered after uh, undergrad. And we'd have conferences down there and be like, we want to like do something that is, you know, Tennessee is cool, but it's like so remote. It's like several hours even away from like Nashville or Knoxville or anything like that. And so we wanted to do something that was more like in society that actually like was going to be impactful to people, not just our own fun little side project. And so we were like, well, we need a space. We need like a thing that actually grounds us. In the meantime, there are other sort of little side projects that we kind of collaborated on. And then eventually, once um, I moved back to Pittsburgh, Mike and Jackie, um, they were living in Colorado and they were just on, I think, Zillow. Um, and they just found this old elementary school and was like, we've always talked about starting a school. Maybe we should like buy this thing and see. Um, at the same time, a bunch of people in Pittsburgh were like, it'd be cool to all have like a shared house that we all lived in. And then we saw the school and we're like, oh man, the third floor could be like these like loft apartments that all of our friends live in with one shared common space and kitchen. And then the bottom two floors, we could like run a school out of it or something like that, right? Like do something cool. And yeah, so we learned a lot of things about the world and that like, you can't really do that. <laughs> um, that first of all, buildings that old, like it to turn them into residential units cost millions of dollars. And then the zoning issues with trying to have co-residential plus children in school kind of thing um, is very difficult. Um, and so the project just slowly evolved partially because of necessity, because of like funding and zoning and code and things like that. But partially because I think what we did, we did it the right way where we just sort of listened to the community around that school. Like this wasn't our school. I didn't go to this school, right? Like the taxpayers of Wilkinsburg bought this school. All the people in the neighborhood grew up going to this school. Like this is their school. This is their space. It's a public space. And now it's being privatized because they have to sell out, sell off some of their assets. So we actually just kind of listened to what people would want out of it and like what, and we learned a lot and we tried to adapt our whole thing to what we thought people would want, which is like this sort of hybrid community center slash event space slash office space. And we actually sadly lost some of our founders because of this. Like some of our founders had their own ideology about like how radical or not radical the space had to be. Um, and they weren't living in Pittsburgh. And so they didn't really know the people that we were trying to serve. Um, and so they just kind of, fell to the wayside and now they don't really um do anything with the organization anymore but we're stronger now because of it like we, our core is just people that really care about wilkinsburg and the community and, and doing the right thing so yeah so we bought this elementary school and fixed it up mostly ourselves we had contractors do some of the like you know accessibility type stuff that we're not legally even allowed to do uh, but besides that we did most of the work ourselves and with volunteers and with like family like our all of our collective moms have put in like so much time like doing like cleaning and gardening and like building and stuff like that so my dad like everybody my grandpa has been out there so yeah it's been really uh it's been really like a community project um and it's great 
Um, we're about to transition into a full nonprofit. Been an amazing learning experience and a really kind of rewarding thing to do this. And um, me and Mike's wife, Jackie, also started Pittsburgh Learning Commons, which is just a peer education nonprofit that operates out of the space. And same sort of thing. We didn't know anything about 51C3s, but now we feel like we know everything about you know, filing taxes and doing all these things. So, um, yeah, that's been, like I said, I want to do things I like, but I also kind of want to live my life the right way. And uh, I've got a lot of privilege for some because I like worked hard, but mostly it's kind of because of like where I grew up and my family and the opportunities that I had. And so, yeah, I have to, I have to do something to try and make sure uh, that other people are kind of in this similar boat that I was in. So that's, yeah, that's my side hustle. You started out by saying you're sort of two spheres or education and then you know, living your life in a way that, that you can feel good about and, and making a positive impact for others. If you were giving some advice to 15, 16, 17-year-olds who hear this story and they say, uh, you know, Coop went on, he was fascinated by these academic topics and he gets to do them every day. He has these other passions uh, and wants to feel good about the life he leads. He gets to do that every day. Like, how do I get there? Not not that physics and community forge are their things, but what advice do you have about, you know, when you're in high school, how do you get to take those steps to to live the life that you want to live from your yeah, experience? I think, like, what I would say is it's really worth the time to invest in, like, thinking about why you're doing what you're doing and, like, what your goals really are and, like, what you really need and what you really don't need. I mean, we are constantly being measured all the time and we're constantly being given tasks to perform and to compete. And it's really easy to just get hyper-focused on like, this is my task. I need to get to this point by this time and I need to do this thing. And the next thing to do is I'm supposed to go to college. So I need to make sure I'm studying for the SAT. So I get to good grades, go to college, I get to the college, do this, get a career, get to get a good job. But like what I somehow saw when I was younger, which I don't know how, but it was just fortunately I saw this, is I just saw people who did all the right things up until they were like 22, 23. And then they were like, all right, I got 40 years. <laughs> like, did it, is this what I want to be doing? Like, what is it that I want to be doing? I've never really asked myself like what wanting has to do with it. Like I've just been trying to do the thing that I'm told is what you're supposed to do. And so, yeah, I think like, don't be afraid to not do the thing that you're supposed to do. If you really genuinely think this is the thing that like is right for you in your life. Like the whole NYU over Columbia thing is an example of that the whole leaving postdocs and like my training in some sense behind to like be closer to like family and to make it work with my wife who wanted to like work in Pittsburgh, the whole taking out all of this debt to buy this elementary school to turn it into a community center, which was like a really risky thing too. At every one of those turns, my own family was just like, you are an idiot. <laughs> like, what are you doing? Like, you can't like, and, like, I feel bad. Like, I don't want to like throw them under the bus or anything, but it's not their fault. They're looking out for what's best for me. And, but what in their mind was best for me was the standard thing. Go to the highest rated school, take the highest paying job. Like my dad was like, the, he was like a little bit worried whenever I told him I was leaving engineering um, because he was just kind of like, this is like a guaranteed high paying job. You know what I mean? Um, and it's like, but the difference was, was that he didn't really get that like 
guaranteed high paying job wasn't why I was there in the first place. The best opportunity to apply my PhD in a research faculty physician wasn't why I was there in the first place. Like I felt like I accomplished why I was there, which was like to get all the way to the edge of this cliff of where we are in our understanding of the universe and look out into empty space and try and see things that no one's seen before. Like I was doing that and that was great. I didn't need any sort of other kind of like tenure track validation or anything like that. That's like really hard to like get to that comfort level with yourself and your choices. And that takes a lot of work and you actually can't do it alone. Like you need other people to work through that with you and you need to be working through their problem, like questions too. And you just need to like really open up and be vulnerable to people so they can be vulnerable to you. So you can all figure out like what's best for each other. And I would really, really suggest investing time and energy into that. Even if it means taking away a little bit of time and energy from grades, even if it means taking a little bit of time and energy away from like writing resumes and stuff like that. I, I know too many sad 40 year olds. <laughs> like I know too many people who have like done everything right and are just like, now what, you know? Um, so yeah, figure that out, figure that out for yourself and like make some sacrifices maybe to have to actually make that happen. So I have a, a question that's specific for you. Cause when I talk to teens, one of the things that they'll ask me is like, how do I, how do I find my people? Right. How do I find the crew of people that I really feel comfortable with and I can do things with and won't sort of judge me for who I am? Um, and I think one of the things that's interesting about your story is that along the way you found a crew of people, you know, with Mike in particular, who for the past, what, 15 years, you said, what would you tell teens when they when they say, you know, how do I find how do I find my people? The first introductions to the people that I consider kind of my lifetime crew are always kind of like random chance meet. I mean, usually through things that we had in common, like whether it be like physics classes or a ska concert or like a chess club or something. Um, But the the important thing is not finding them. It's keeping them. The important thing is that like social connectivity is like kind of a, had happened so naturally when you're younger and when you're smashed together into a school space and everything like that. But it starts to become harder and harder the older you get. And it actually takes, again, it just takes making sacrifices to do. Like sometimes you're like, I don't want to spend the only vacation I have going to visit this person in Colorado. Um, I want to like go somewhere new that I've never been before. Like blah, 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 go to the beach and relax. But it's like, no, I'm going to go to Colorado partially because it's going to be really fun, but partially because I need to do this like every year. So that way I'm relevant to this person and this person's relevant to me. And we need to like buy a space in Tennessee and hold conferences every year so that everyone is checking in with each other every single year in some sort of in-person capacity. Um, And so, yeah, I would say like find your people good, but also like invest in them and like, you know, Whenever you might want to say no to a social thing, if you think it's like kind of important to them, then like say yes to it, even though you kind of don't want to do it. Like the thing that's really sad, I feel like about just American culture in generally is that we're very much like, I mean, like Netflix sort of encapsulates this thing where it's like everyone should get to choose their experience and customize their experience to be like whatever they want. Right. And I think that that's like really cool that like we have a a reality in which we can customize it so much, but like, We also need to learn how to make sacrifices to not be able to customize. Like that's so many people like live alone, like completely alone. Mm -hmm. And 
I feel that it's like really sad, but when I talk to them, they're like, Oh, I love it. Like, how do you even handle it? If like you get really annoyed at like your roommate for blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, I mean, it, it sucks, but it's because he's a different person than I, and like, you just have to be like being okay with other people being different and it not always being however you want it is really important. So when you're trying to like find your crew, you need to make sacrifices for these people and they will return it. And that will create a sort of like bond in which hell no, there's no like judging and things like that. How can you just be, of course you can just be yourself because like you guys are really like being super vulnerable with each other and making sacrifices for each other. And that's like, no matter what happens between me and Mike, like you need to go through actual sort of like growing hardships. Um, It's really easy to be like, there'll always be another friend I can get. I'll toss this one to the wayside and I won't have to work on the thing that caused the tension in the first place. Um, You know, so I don't know. Yeah. Work through things and like, make sacrifices yeah that's the billion dollar answer right there thanks coop that's good stuff (laughs) (laughs) that was fun yeah thank you i have one more question for you this is my special quarantine season question um and that is uh so we're all trapped at home at least you know for a little while longer uh and particularly since our target audience is teens what advice do you have for teens as something they could do uh during this quarantine time, uh, either to take care of themselves or to enlighten themselves or just to pass the time, uh, a little bit of advice on what to do when you're stuck at home. Yeah. Um, so yes, what's interesting about this is me and teens are in such a different situation. Um, because I sort of had all of this like stuff I just like wanted to do with my life on the back burner and so the second quarantine started I was like yes I've got 35 books I want to read I've got 12 projects at home I want to do so I talked to a lot of teens like through community forge and stuff and the number one thing they say is like I'm so bored and I'm just like oh my god I haven't felt bored in like 20 years like that must be so nice um but yeah I guess if I had to put myself in their shoes and it was like I need to like create something. I don't already have that scaffold there of like things that I just never had the time to fill in. Um, what I would say is that like doing, having like a new thing for me um, is just like a really like amazing experience where it's like literally try and do something that's like completely new. Like be like, you know what? I've never learned. I would love to be able to make like cool, like, hip-hop beats on, on the computer and i've got like garage band and i have some attachments i could hook up like i'm gonna like learn how to like make music and or or like whenever i was in high school i decided i was gonna learn elvish one time and i just like signed up for online elvish classes and was like reading vocabulary words and i got really into it and i tried to make my own language um and uh so yeah so what i would recommend is like here's like a lot of time that you have that you can dedicate like serious hours to and you don't really have like a deadline or anything. So like a big part of like why like school can be stressful is because you have to learn something new on a deadline, you know? Um, and so I would say like pick something that you've always been like kind of interested in, but you just never had the energy to get over that barrier to, to actually jump into something um, and, and jump into it. Like, like learn an instrument, learn a language, learn how to do something on the computer, right? Um, learn how to build something, paint something, make something. Um, I would say like, create some new experience that you've never done uh, before this quarantine. Um, And it'll turn this from being quarantine time where I had to do something to like, 
oh yeah that was like violin summer like there was like a, my like mom had like an old violin in the closet from when she was a kid and that's when i tried to teach myself I, oh yeah yeah, we were inside all the time forgot about that yeah there was that like covid thing right like try and make it about this new experience yeah yeah i'm still trying to figure out what my thing is i'm sure i'll come up with something <laughs> yeah this is your thing <laughs> this is my thing i'm running in high school and doing podcasts and all kinds of stuff <laughs> exactly um any uh other words of wisdom you want to add any other words of wisdom um yeah i don't know yeah i would say don't let the like world get you down too much because that is going to take wind out of your sails and it's going to make you a less effective person but at the same time balance that with like actually feeling a responsibility for the world that you live in that's like a balancing act that is um extremely difficult to do Um, but that's what i'd recommend for anybody to be like you know, everything I have, I have because of other people and the people around me and the people in my life and the people who live generations before me who built up all of this knowledge and infrastructure and science and everything to have this amazing, plentiful existence. Like you owe it to all them to like be trying to make a better world in the future. But at the same time, don't get so focused on the fact that like, there's a lot of like, hard stuff going on out there um that we are one out of nine billion or seven billion whatever we're like you know one out of order 10 to the 10 people out there and so don't expect that you're going to go and fix everything all by yourself like it's good that we it's good that we don't live in a world where one person can like do all that um because if we did there'd be 10 billion people that are all trying to do all that right so accept the fact that you're a finite creature with finite emotional energy and finite resources um but don't let that lull you into some sort of sense of complacency where it's like well i can't do anything about it so i'll just try and get the job that makes the most money live in the house that's the most comfortable and live a lifestyle that like is the easiest for me find the middle path uh between those things is what i would say is recommendation that took me a while to learn and i probably wish i wish i would have had a mentor in high school that like had that um framing of things awesome i think those are excellent words of wisdom to part on so thanks coop uh this has been great i've really enjoyed this conversation thank you always a pleasure to see you randy thanks for having me thanks take care I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Coop. If you can track him down, you can get his guacamole recipe. We Make the Road by Walking is a production of City of Bridges High School. Music is written by Kelly and Chris Miskus as Eagle Moose. And as I said at the open, if you like what we do, please give us five stars, a positive review. And if you have a story you want to tell, please reach out. We're all about finding out the paths that you lead and the things that you learned along the way. Have a great week, and we'll see you soon.